All right, let's uh, pray for the Holy Spirit's power to come to fill us and to teach us, to illuminate to us His Word, the Bible. God the Father, thank you so much for sending God the Son to clean us out, to take away every sin, to add every righteousness of His own, and to make us the perfect home for God the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we love the Word you've inspired. We love it. Lord, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would illuminate it to us now and teach us the Bible. Open our eyes that, my, that we might behold wondrous things out of thy law. Lord, help us to love the Bible, to live the Bible, to place ourselves under the Bible, to humble ourselves before the Bible, to breathe the Bible, and to be the people of the Bible. Holy Spirit, now, for those who are suffering, I know so many are suffering. Some are silent sufferers. We don't even know they're suffering because they can't even tell us yet what's going on. For those who are suffering, may the Bible heal them. For those who are sinning, for those who are in unrepentant sin, who walk in sin, who do not have light, but rather walk in darkness. For the Christians who are dabbling in darkness again, though they at one point turned from it, but have fallen back to old ways. For those of us who are sinning, help us to repent because of the Bible and to find another fresh start with Jesus as the one sheep he runs after, leaving 99 behind. For those of us who just need to learn the Bible, who don't know this text, who don't know this passage, help us to get it in our heart, in our memory, that later we can draw it out against the schemes of the devil and that we can live this out as we go from here. Holy Spirit, please teach us the Bible. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're in Acts 16. And this morning, we are talking about the power of Jesus. Let me just tell you, sometimes it is good for us to just remember who is on the throne. Amen? It's good for us to remember this. Who's on the throne? Who's always been on the throne? Is on the throne? Will always be on the throne? His name is Jesus. Who's in control? Really? Jesus. Who's in charge of this place? Really? Jesus. Who has the power in his hand? It is none other than Jesus. It is good for us to remember that. Because even though we love Jesus and we're Christians, many of us following Jesus, we forget Jesus. I mean, we're Christians. We're not really a religion. We're more of a faith. We don't have a ton of, you know, rituals and ceremonies we do all the time, except for what we'll do today at the Lord's Supper when we remember his blood, death, and resurrection. But other than that, in baptism, we don't have a lot of religion going on. And so thus, we're walking with God, connected to him via the Spirit. And sometimes when the world, the flesh, the devil comes in, we, instead of walking in the Spirit, walk in the flesh, and we forget who's on the throne. Are you on the throne? Am I on the throne? Are we on the throne? Mom on the throne? Is dad on the throne? Are the kids on the throne? In my house, in the morning they are, until I get coffee, and then I'm on the throne again. But anyway... Right? Who's on the throne? That guy? Uncle Frank? I can't remember. Who's on the throne? And today it's good for us to just remind ourselves that there is a sovereign God in control of all of this over us, lovingly and in power on the throne. His name is Jesus. He sits on the highest throne, and his reign will never end. When we forget that Jesus is on the throne, things can get chaotic. Even worse, when we 
disregard the fact that Jesus is on the throne and we attempt to dethrone him in some weird way or challenge his power, things get chaotic. That's true for us in life. That's true for humanity in history, is it not? Right? The world looks a little chaotic sometimes, right? You, 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 you get on Twitter, right, which is something I do, and it's a complete, I know, it's a waste of time. It's a sickness. I don't know why I keep logging in and liking it and then hating it. I don't know. But you get on there, world's in chaos. world's always been in chaos. Ever since Genesis 3, it's been in chaos. And if you look through history, you find out the reason it's in chaos is because it's a constant attempt to take Jesus off the throne. This has been going on for eons. Back in eternity past, Lucifer challenges the power of Jesus, tries to take over heaven. In the garden, the serpent challenges humanity and, and Jesus' power over it. And, there, and, and he tries to usurp a power that he, is not his. We see the Tower of Babel showing off their power. We see Sodom and Gomorrah trying to take power over those angels. We try uh, to keep, we keep turning, trying to get away from just another power grab, and there's Pharaoh trying to usurp authority and power, challenge Jesus' power over the people of God, the Israelites. I mean, every page of the Bible is another story of someone challenging Jesus' power and the chaos that ensues. But each time someone tries to dethrone Jesus, challenge the power of Jesus, he, in his own way and in his own timing, demonstrates and reinforces his power once again. He turns the tables every time and shows off his glorious reign, his glorious sovereignty, his glorious control, his power. I mean, the ultimate place we see this in the scriptures would be the cross. I mean, that was the ultimate power grab. Satan enters the heart of Judas. Judas goes to betray Jesus into the hand of sinners. Right? The sinners tried to dethrone Jesus by handing him to the courts, and the courts crucify him. And it looks like Satan has him dethroned. But three days later, the tables turn, and his power is on display. In a most glorious, the most glorious way in human history, three days later, Jesus Christ rises again from death holding the keys of death and hell, holding the keys to eternal life, ascending before us into heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father, where his reign again shall not end. Right? Not only did he turn his murder on the cross, his own murder became the atonement for all the people that the devil had power over. Not only did he buy us eternal forgiveness and righteousness, in the midst of being killed on a Roman cross, he also defeats death, right? The, the greatest weapon of the devil used to lock us into separation from God. He defeats death by rising from death that we might rise from death. And rather than death being a door that keeps us out, it's a door that gets us in to the kingdom of heaven. I mean, this is, this is the story of the world. This is the story of history. This is the story of humanity. Jesus' power on display. Challenges against Jesus' power. Chaos ensues. Jesus turns the tables, demonstrates his power, typically saving people who've challenged it. It's an amazing thing. And it's the story of Acts 16. In one sense, it's almost every story in the scriptures, and it's no different here in Acts 16. We see this in verses 16 through 18, the power of Jesus displayed. 
Look at verse 16 through 18. You'll see it. The power of Jesus displayed. Verse 16, And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, that's Luke, Paul, Silas, Timothy, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. That's fortune-telling. The same followed Paul and us and cried. Right? So she's getting loud. She says, These men are servants of the Most High God, right? the one on the throne, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the spirit, the demon that's inside of this little slave girl, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that same hour. So Paul is holding prayer meetings, right? He's, we read in early Acts 16 that there's no synagogue in Philippi, so he goes down to the river to pray, like that old song, and that would have happened on the Sabbath, and they would have preached the gospel. And he's going in, likely, as he always does, to the town square, and he's preaching the gospel, and he's moving about throughout Philippi, a place he just got, first city to hear the gospel in Europe. He's moving around, and he's telling people about the Most High God and the way of salvation. And one day, one of the other so-called, if you will, preachers in the city, a little girl that's owned by two guys, has a demon-possessed spirit in her, comes up, sees that Paul has a spirit as well, different than hers. Hers is one of darkness, his is the Holy Spirit, but she can see it being of the supernatural, and she begins to call it out. Right? Hey, he's got the spirit of the Most High God. He's preaching to you the way of salvation. She's getting loud. She's getting boisterous. She's getting noticed. She's proclaiming the truth. Now, the question that comes up is, why would someone who is possessed of a demon follow around a preacher possessed with the Holy Spirit and confirm all of the things he's saying, all of his message, all of his actions? What's going on with that? I'll tell you, uh, that's a little above my pay grade. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I've never been demon-possessed. I don't talk with demons. I don't, I don't ask them questions. I just don't know why a demon would do this. What I think is perhaps happening is that somehow, because she is filled with the supernatural, she can recognize the supernatural, and there's a battle going on for her, and there's a battle going on in her, and that she can tell where others can't, that message is true, that God is the real God, that's salvation, that's the Most High God, Right, where she can tell it, she starts to, to say that in hopes that the apostles perhaps will free her from the spiritual darkness that is inside her. Right? Because it's not her that's telling these fortunes for money for her owners. It's not her that wants to be filled with the spirit of divination. It is in her. Perhaps she wants freedom, and so perhaps she's crying out, and that in her is this battle between spiritual darkness and spiritual light. That might be what's going on, but here's what we know happens, is that after a while, Paul, the Bible says, gets grieved. Now, I want to say, this sounds a little more spiritual than it really is. Now, it is spiritual, and Paul's a, a, you know, he's a spiritual guy. He's, a, he's an example for us, to be sure, but in the King James, it says grieved. How you would say it in 2019 is he was super annoyed. I mean, that's it, right? Like when you hear someone chewing loud at the restaurant, right? And, or whatever, their cereal in the morning and they're chewing super loud and it's starting to get in your head and you're frustrated. 
Like, dude, stop, right? Like, people in China can hear you. Like, stop, right? Like, that concept of frustrated, annoyed, ah, annoyed. That's the idea of grieved, right? He uh, is being followed by this little, incessantly, by this little slave girl who's possessed with the spirit of divination, who's crying out, hey, he's the servant of the Most High. He is teaching the way of salvation. And he gets annoyed. Now, there's question marks in that, too, right? Like, Paul, why are you frustrated? A, she's giving you free publicity. Everyone knows her in town as someone connected to the supernatural, and she's confirming all these things that, all these things that you're saying about the supernatural. Wouldn't that be good for you, Paul? Well, when we think about it and break it down and give it a second, A, it's probably frustrating because she's in his face, right? She's loud. She's crying out and she's, a distra- she's distracting. But additionally, it's probably a very confusing association for Paul, right? Paul's trying to teach something new, the New Testament, new covenant. There's, a, there's coming a new heaven and a new earth. All who come to Jesus are new creation. Things have passed away. All things become new, He's trying to teach that there's a new man that fights against the old man, that the Jews and the Gentiles are one new man and the wall of hostility has been broken down. He's trying to teach something new. And if they know her as someone connected to the demonic and part of their old way of thinking about faith and God and life, right? And she comes and says, hey, I'm with them. Or it looks even like she's saying I'm with them. We're like doing the same thing. It might be a a very difficult and confusing association for Paul. So at some point, as far as I read the text, this is what happens. At some point, it dawns on Paul, like, this girl's not your average girl, right? Like, she's not just yelling stuff out because she's excited. No, 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 something's going on with this girl. Right? She is actually in bondage. She's, in, she's a slave in multiple ways in the physical sense that, there are masters over her using her for profit and in a spiritual sense in that a demonic being has taken residence inside of her. And he puts the puzzle together like she's coming to me. I'm an apostle of Jesus. I am ready to free her. And so he goes to free her. He calls on the most powerful name, the name of the most high God, and he casts out the demon from her because Jesus is greater and much more powerful than the demonic. Jesus can cast out a demon easier than we can squash a bug. Paul calls on the name of Jesus. He finally gets it that this is his calling to help her, to free her, to love her. And so he calls on Jesus' name and she's freed. It's an amazing moment. It's Jesus' power on display. Like a, like, a, like, a, like a billboard, like, like, like flashing lights, like, a, like, like Times Square with all those giant screens that cover the whole building with advertisements. Jesus' power is now on display in Philippi as the supreme spiritual power in town. They had the, the, the Greek gods, they had Zeus, they had Hermes, they had demonic divinations that could tell the future, but someone greater has come into town. Jesus' power here is on display. Now, when you cast a demon out of the town fortune teller, that gets noticed, especially by the people profiting off of her, by her owners. Now, when 
Jesus' power is on display, and when Jesus' power is noticed, what are we supposed to do? What we're supposed to do when Jesus' power becomes manifest and apparent and before us is we are supposed to worship. We're supposed to bow down. Sometimes that's metaphorical, right? We bow down in the sense of we humble ourselves. Sometimes it's physical. You know, sometimes in our Christian walk, in our faith, there's really nothing for you to do. There's no, like, next action step. It's not like, okay, now do this, that, and the other. Now stop this, start this. Sometimes the Christian is called to simply worship, to literally confess, I have no power, you have all power. I have no holiness, you have all holiness. I need redemption, you have redemption. I need God, you are God. You are better than me. Worship. When we see the power of Jesus on display, when there's an answer to prayer, when we sing songs and the Spirit fills us, when we teach the Bible and we learn something new, when we are interacting with the awesome power of God, our key, our first, our primary job is simply to worship God. You're on the throne, not me. God is God, I am not. That's what we are to do. But many times, instead of bowing down to Jesus' power, in our flesh, in our humanity, in our sin, we challenge Jesus' power. Like we said, this has been happening for eons. This has been happening since the beginning of the world. This has been happening over the, the millennia and the centuries, time and time again. Jesus' power on display, calling all to belief, all to repentance, all to worship, and he has met many, many, many times instead with a challenge. See this in the text. The power of Jesus on display, the power of Jesus challenged. Look at verse 19 and 20. Verse 19 and 20. And when her masters saw that the hope of their gain was gone, right, they can no longer make money off of her for her demonic spirit has been released. She can no longer soothsay. She can no longer tell fortunes. They caught Paul and Silas, and they drew them into the marketplace under the rulers and brought them to the magistrates. Right? So real quick, let me explain this. In a Roman colony like Philippi, there were two magistrates, the two judges that ruled over everybody. So this is a pretty high court. But though it was a pretty high court, it was kind of an unorganized court, at least to our Western standards of today, because you, could, you didn't have to have an appointment to go to court before these two magistrates. In fact, if you could physically get the defendant there, you could take him to court anytime you want, right? Like if you can drag him by the collar, stick him in a wheelbarrow, I don't know, like somehow get him to court, you could have court right there, right? You wake up, Right? He does something to you on Tuesday. By Tuesday at 5, if you get enough guys together to grab him, take him down to the marketplace where they had sort of a city hall where these two magistrates would have been, you can take him to court. And this is what happens. Cast out the demon. The owners of the, the slave girl with the spirit of divination get upset because there goes our paycheck. And they probably get a couple of guys around. They grab Paul by the collar, Silas by the collar, and take him down to City Hall right there at the market and put him before a, a fairly high court in Philippi. We keep reading and we see the accusation towards the end of verse 20. It says, these, this is what they said. They, they said, these men, being Jews, 
do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe being Romans. Okay, so as we read this in 2019 with Western eyes, right, we see, okay, these guys taking Paul and Silas to court. The plaintiffs here say, here's the deal. Right, these guys are stirring up the city, preaching Judaism, because they're misunderstanding the fact that though these guys are Jewish guys, they're Christians. They're really preaching Christianity. But anyway, it says, hey, these guys come, they're, they're, they're messing with the city, they're teaching Judaism, they're proselytizing, and that's illegal. And so we read that and we assume that these guys must know what they're talking about, that this must be illegal. Especially as we read in the book of Acts, they're traveling from place to place. In some places, it is illegal for them to preach Jesus. But here's something very interesting, that this accusation is actually not true. It's not true in multiple ways. First of all, it says that they were troubling the city. No one else is bothered by these guys except these two Slave owners, that's who's bothered, not the whole city, just these guys. The accusation's false. Additionally, at this time, in this Roman colony of Philippi, they did have religious freedom, in a sense. It's not like our religious freedom exactly, because whoever was in charge could veto a religion whenever they wanted to, but in a broad sense, they could practice the religion of their choice in Philippi at this time. Additionally, though proselytizing or trying to make converts was looked down on as like something you shouldn't do socially. It was not illegal. So they actually, not only did they not disrupt the city, they didn't break any of Rome's laws. And when we see this accusation come forth in front of these two magistrates, we see the plaintiffs make this accusation against the defendants. What we see in these just simple few verses are the lessons of why People challenge the power of Jesus and how people challenge the power of Jesus. We get answers to those two questions right there. Why do people challenge Jesus' power? Why, when it's us, why do we challenge Jesus' power? Very simple answer. They do not want what he is offering. Jesus wants to free this slave girl not only from her slavery to be sure that's true but also from her demonic possession these men in their wickedness want a slave and they want to own her as a possession he wants righteousness they want sin Jesus wants these guys to see his power on display, bow down, humble themselves, join the church at Philippi, and to begin to serve women instead of abuse women. They don't want to do that. They want the economic gain, not eternal value. They want to make decisions, not be under the decisions of Jesus. They want to be in charge, not to be under the sovereignty of Jesus. They want life to go on as they see fit, not to take the life that Jesus is offering them. Make sure, make sure, make sure that this is not you. Make sure that you do not challenge the life that Jesus is offering you, thinking that there is some better life. 
Jesus may not be offering you the life of health and wealth and, 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 and fame and fortune. He is offering you the life of picking up your cross and following him, dying to your flesh and loving your neighbor as yourself. Take the latter, not the former. Do not challenge the life that Jesus has given you. Embrace the talents that he's given you. Embrace the people that he's put you by. Embrace the church he's called you to serve. Embrace the spiritual gifts he's filled you with. Take the life he's offering because it's filled with good news. Jesus offers a life of forgiveness, of grace, of connection to God the Father. Jesus offers a life of prayer and a life of gratitude. Jesus offers a life of seeing the lives of others changed partly by your service. Jesus offers a great life. He has come to give us life and life more abundantly. But here's the thing. Men love darkness rather than light. So they challenge the power of Jesus. And how do they do it? Like, how does one challenge the power of Jesus? Well, we see here the only way to do it is with a lie. With a lie. Do you remember um, before the cross, Jesus was accused, and every single accusation that they slung against him was false. He was only falsely accused. And it's almost comical, it's not, but it's almost comical that it really, it notes this in the four Gospels that their false accusations didn't even add up. Like they were lying about their lies. I mean, it gets deep. They couldn't even agree which lie to say was the truth because there was nothing to accuse him of. He was and is and always will be sinless. But they accused him falsely because the only way to challenge the power of Jesus is with falsehood. Let me just tell you, if there is ever a challenge against the power of Jesus, no matter how scientific it seems, no matter how archaeological it seems, no matter how historical it seems, no matter, no matter how compassionate on its face that it seems, if it is an attempt to challenge the power of Jesus, don't believe it. Because it is a lie. When we challenge the power of Jesus to create through something like Darwinism, just no, in there is a lie. When we challenge the power of Jesus to command us, right, and we say we can live in certain other ways, all roads are going to lead to heaven. There's lies in there. All roads are not going to lead to heaven. There is only one name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. There's only one. Every challenge to Jesus' power, whether it's his power to create or his power to save, is wholly based on a lie. And so today, you do need to take an inventory, like you do most days, and you need to ask yourself, what lies am I believing? What lies are, are beginning to creep in? And we need to preach the truth to those lies. And the truth always goes back to the one who's on the throne. Here, unfortunately, the crowd is deceived and the crowd believes the lie. We see this in verse 22 through 24, if you want to read along. Acts 16, 22 through 24, it says, And the multitude, right, the people around the court looking at this, the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes, that's Paul and Silas's clothes, and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer 
to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. So the magistrates don't even hold a trial. They just take off the robes from Paul and Silas. They get an officer over. They say, here's what, here's what we're doing. First, he's getting a beating. This would have been uh, one of their, the, the punishment kind of right in the middle. Right? It's not the lightest punishment. It's not the heaviest punishment. You would have taken a rod, sort of like a nightstick, laid stripes on him until the magistrate said, that's enough, that fits the crime. We know that this beating had to be particularly bad because in 2 Corinthians 11.25, Paul references it. It's one of his sufferings. Then, not only do they beat them, they throw them in jail, but not only do they throw them in jail, they throw them in the innermost prison. This is sort of what you think of when you think of a dungeon, right? In the regular prison, there would have been little holes where light and air could have come through the stone walls. So you'd get some natural light, you'd get some airflow up towards the top of the cell, perhaps. There would have been just a small window cut out. In the innermost prison, there's only darkness, there's no airflow, there's only dampness, there's only stone. There's no bed, there's no chair. Furthermore, they put them in the stocks, which means they chain them to the stone wall. <laughs> so they got these guys beaten and weakened, and then they got these guys stuck in the innermost prison. And this is a good time to remind ourselves, what did these guys do? Oh yeah, they freed a little girl from spiritual bondage. They freed a demon-possessed slave girl from her misery and from her owners, from the wicked, from these sick people. This is what they did. See, the crowd was okay with her being a spiritual, a, a girl connected to the supernatural, as long as it was supernatural darkness. But like we said, men love darkness rather than light. As soon as spiritual light came into the picture, it was time to challenge it. And rather than befriending God, they made an enemy out of him. But what we see next, and what we see every time this happens, is that Jesus puts his power back on display and turns the tables on everybody. And it's an amazing thing. It's a beautiful thing. So thirdly, in this text, we've seen the power of Jesus displayed. We've seen the power of Jesus challenged. And now we see the power of Jesus to turn the tables. And it's awesome. I mean, this is an incredible story. This is good. I love this story. I mean, this is incredible. Verse 25, it says, And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed. And they sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. Note that last phrase, the prisoners heard them. Oh, this is beautiful, man. Whew, this is good. Right? They're putting them into the innermost prison cell to try to, to shut them up and to keep their message out of the ears of the Philippian people. And yet, even in that innermost prison cell, they pray and sing praises, and the prisoners hear their message. The magistrates, the jailer, they, they, they tried to put their own power on display, and they're, they're trying to do is crush the spirits of Paul and Silas. In fact, that's what I think is going on in this text, is that the reason they were treated so severely is that what I think was happening was that they were only going to do this for a day or two, right? They'll beat them up, they'll stick them in the dungeon, and in a day or two we'll release them, and their spirit will be so crushed they'll leave Philippi. Right? So that I think that the magistrate, I think the jailers are trying to crush the spirit of Paul and Silas, and yet we see Jesus' power to uplift their spirits. 
In in, in the depths of this darkness, Jesus brings them a great joy. Instead of crushed in spirit, they're full of spirit. And I think many times when we get to this text, it's a very familiar text, it's a familiar story, I think that many times when we get to this text, we get it wrong. In that we think that this text is a testament to Paul and Silas's strength. Like even when they're in jail, man, even when they... When they're down for the count, even when it's the worst of the worst, they're still singing. Those guys are awesome. These guys are obedient and examples to be sure. But I don't think that this text is a testament to the strength of Paul and Silas. I think this story is a testament to the strength and to the power of Jesus. He has power to bring his people joy in the midst of the worst circumstances. He has the power to bring his people joy when everything is trying to suck that joy out of their life. He has the power to uplift a spirit that has been crushed, he and he alone. Nobody else, nothing else has the power to bring us this true, this pure, this glorious joy. Only Jesus. We look for it in alcohol, but alcohol has no power to bring us joy. Drugs have no power to bring us joy, as powerful as they are. Gossip and slander, self-absorption, materialism, laziness. Your list goes on. We look so many places for this. And no place and no person has the power to bring joy to God's people other than God himself. Jesus brings us joy. When we humble ourselves under the power of Jesus, when we confess our powerlessness and we embrace his power, when we remember who is on the throne, in his power, he brings us joy. And nothing can stop it. This is a testament to the power of Jesus to take these prisoners and to give them a song in the middle of the night. They're trying to bind up their joy. They're trying to crush the joy of Paul and Silas. Jesus turns the tables. He brings them joy. They try to lock up Paul and Silas. Jesus turns the tables, and he releases Paul and Silas. Look at verse 26. Uh, This is almost funny. It's not funny, I guess, but it's kind of funny, right? And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, And immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bands were loosed. I mean, this is turning the tables. This is, I mean, they put Paul and Silas in the deepest part of the prison so that they were sure not to escape. But with God, all things are possible. And it was no harder for God to get them out of the innermost part of the prison than the outer prison. It's not like God had to like sweat a little bit more and think a little harder to get them out from the inner prison. When you're all powerful, nothing is harder than anything else. Someday you'll lay awake at night thinking about that. I guess that's true. There's no struggle here. He sends an earthquake where they were trying to bind their feet in stocks. The stocks are loosed. Tables totally turned. And now here is the... This is the most beautiful twist of all in the story. This, this is where the, 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 the shock comes. I mean, this is why the good news has gone across to the ends of the earth for 2,000 years and is only spreading and never diminishing. I mean, because this is 
truly awesome. I mean, in the, in the truest sense of the word, this is amazing where the story goes next. I mean, this is it. This is the, this is the greatest twist. This is the greatest plot in all of human history. Jesus has power, all power, over his enemies. Okay, but get this, is, and this is the gospel. This is the good news. It's amazing. But in this New Testament age of grace, he does not use that power to crush his enemies. He uses that power to save his enemies. What? Yeah. In fact, he has no desire to destroy the jailer. He was destroyed for the jailer on a Roman cross. He has no joy in condemning the magistrates. He was condemned for the magistrates. You need to know this from the front to the back. Jesus has no desire to crush you. He loves you and was crushed for you. He uses his power to turn the tables in our favor. That's good news. Everybody say hallelujah. All right, I need some more from you guys. I'm about to trade you in for some Pentecostals, okay? This is incredible. Huh? I'm looking up on Craigslist if there's any available Pentecostals to come wake us stoic people up. Look at, I mean, this is unbelievable. Look at verse 27. It says, And the keeper of the prison, waking out of his sleep, seeing the prison doors open, drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had fled. So the jailer's house is likely attached to the prison, right? Um, the earthquake happens. He wakes up. He looks down the hallway of the prison, sees all the doors are open. He thinks, well, I'm done for. So he takes out his sword. He's going to do the job himself so the magistrates don't have to do it tomorrow when they realize everybody has fled. And then look what happens. Verse 28, it says, And Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm. We are all here. Then he called for a light. He sprang in. He came trembling. He fell down before Paul and Silas, and he brought them out and said, and this is the most important question in all of history, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Beautiful. Paul says, don't do yourself any harm. And here's why that's amazing, because likely this is the guy who did him harm. This is likely the guy who did the beating, because he's the guy who was told to lock him up. And Jesus, I mean, he's, not only does he love his enemies, he tells us to love our enemies. So Paul does. And it's this love. Interesting. It's so fascinating. God is a God of wrath. There is a hell. That's all true. But this is just fascinating. It's this love. It's this mercy. It's this grace that made the jailer fear God. Like, what? Don't harm myself. I deserve to be harmed. Yeah, but don't. We love you. This is the word. This is the Bible. This is the story. This is the message of God. And so in that moment of fear, before great grace and great mercy, he bows down and says, what do I do to be saved? What do I, there is a most high God. There is a guy on the throne. I need him. What do I do to, to, to get him? And the answer is so simple. They said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. It's going to work for your wife. It's going to work for your kids. It's going to work for grandma, the in-laws, even the in-laws. It's going to work for everyone. Just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. 
Verse 32, they explain it a little further. They spoke to him, the word of the Lord, all that were in his house. Jesus is God. Jesus is sinless. Jesus healed. Jesus taught. Jesus fed. Jesus was humble, yet Jesus was strong. He flipped the tables of the money changers. He, he, he called down uh, food for the 5,000. Jesus was taken, placed on a cross with you on his mind. He loved you enough to be the atonement, the perfect lamb without blemish and spot who wipes away all the sins of the world. He rises from death. He conquers Satan's sin and death through his power. He sits on a throne. Believe in that person. They explain it, right? Believe in Jesus. Abandon your claim to power. Embrace his power and trust in his power to save you. Verse 33, beautiful twist again to the story. He took them that same hour of the night, washed their stripes, and was baptized. So he washes their physical wounds. They wash away his spiritual wounds. There's actually a word play there in the Greek. Very beautiful. And then verse 34, when they had brought them into his house, he sat meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Let me just tell you, there is so much joy in knowing who's on the throne. There is so much joy in knowing Jesus' power. There is so much joy in watching Jesus turn the tables, right? They start the night in conflict, right? He beats them and puts them in jail. By the end of the night, they're at dinner together like they're old friends, Only Jesus has this power to bring us from the dungeon to dinner. Only Jesus has the power to cast out demons and then befriend the enemies that he made by doing that. So here's what you do. Remind yourself who's on the throne. That's good for us to do. Remind yourself who's on the throne. Remind your sin of who is on the throne and silence its challenges to that throne. Humble yourself under the power of Jesus Take the life that he is offering you. Remind your circumstances of the power of Jesus. Remind your problems of who is on the throne. And in prayer and expectation, watch for him to turn the tables. And if you haven't yet, believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your house. I'll pray. We will sing one song, staying seated. And then we will distribute communion. Jesus, you're on the throne. And it's a good day whenever we remember that fact. Jesus, I pray now as we worship in response to the Bible, Lord, that we would worship with fear. Fear at your grace, that you do not crush us, but we're rather crushed for us, that you like us and love us. I pray that we would worship with reverence, because you are truly high and lifted up above us forever, and you are the one who is king and not us, I pray that we would worship with happiness and joy, because though you are much more powerful than us, you are for us, and if God be for us, who could be against us? In Jesus' name, amen.